Well, good morning. I'd like to return to your seat. It is unfortunately time for the sermon. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me like, no. <laughs> One of these days, I'll just let the coffee break run for like 30 minutes, and then be like, hey, grace and peace. See you all later. <laughs> And I know that's what some of you are trying to do right now at the back, but I'm going to fight you anyway. We're concluding our series uh, called What God Are You Talking About? It's on page 23 of our journals. If you're taking notes, a, as you may know already, there's a page, a page in uh, for every sort of sermon that we do so you can track and reflect and think back. I'm going to be reading this morning from John chapter 14. So if you uh, have a Bible with you, Maybe turn to that, look it up. If you've borrowed one of our Bibles, it's page 600, so you can get there before everybody else and win the prize. <laughs> Let me recap what we've done with the series so far, just as we landed. In part one, we really explored this idea that what we're doing is thinking about God talk. Some people would call that theology, but essentially, what are we doing when we talk about God? And thinking about that helps us think about what kind of God we're actually talking about. And what we tried to confess in part one is that not only is Jesus God a less than astounding revelation, perhaps for many of us, but if Jesus is God, that shapes how we see and how we look at everything. We then, uh, in, the, in the second week, uh, Phil taught us about how we also understand that God is a God of Trinity. And even though he's revealed to us in Jesus, we live in this this, this tension, this dance, I think, was the, the language that, that Phil used of how we both meet God revealed and also in Trinity. And I love this phrase that he used, that there is no God behind Jesus. We meet Jesus, and he is the revelation of God to us. And then last week, with all of this in mind, what we tried to say was that God wants to be known by us, that, that God is, is, is is there to be revealed to us and known by us. And what we learn is not only does God want to be known by us? But the revelation of Jesus to us is God being known to us. Which if you sort of plot where we've been going, perhaps this morning's subject makes sense that we want to talk about the God you can encounter. But let me throw two questions to you just as we begin this morning. The first question is this. When people hear you talk about God, where does it sound like God is? Perhaps if you're taking notes, write this question down and reflect on it over the course of perhaps the next week. I'm not asking you what the right answer to this question is. I'm asking when somebody listens to you talk about God, based on the way you do talk about God, where do they think God is? Is God there? Is God here? Is God behind us? Or is God ahead of us? And I think that's an interesting question to reflect on, actually. Is God behind us, or is God ahead of us? And then a second question that sort of might be related to all of this, is theology, or God talk, as, as we perhaps uh, prefer to talk about it? Well, let me say it like this. When you think about being true to Jesus, does this involve defending truths about God or Christian living, or Christian worldview? Or is it requiring an attentive ear to what Jesus has been saying and what Jesus is saying? When somebody talks about theology, is it defending the truth or listening to Jesus? Maybe something for you to think about. 
and there. With those in mind, let's turn to the text. The text, as I said this morning, is in John chapter 14. It's a long text. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating about John 14 and the following chapters is it's actually this very long recorded sequence of discourses by Jesus. So really hear Jesus' own thinking and engagement with his disciples. And while I read this text, I'd love you to do a couple of things, both listen to what it's saying, but think about how this in Jesus' words is really, I, I think, a good summary of what we've been wrestling with theologically for the past three weeks. At some level, if you've been tracking with our teaching series for the last three weeks, I think you might hear this, and hopefully you'll go, oh yeah, that is, maybe you'll do this. What we've been talking about for the last three weeks might not be as big a heresy as it sounded like when you first heard it. That's what I'm going for, okay? Bringing in Jesus as my defense. So let's turn to our first witness. <laughs> Jesus says this in chapter one, chapter, sorry, verse one of chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. 
Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. and Do not be afraid. The word of the Lord. <laughs> so back to our question. Where does it sound like God is? And hopefully you resonate. And if you've been tracking with this series, you see why it requires a bit of time sometimes to work through some of this sort of stuff because Jesus brings just real good delineation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then at the same time, talks about them as if they're all sort of the same thing. And we live in this blend, this dance, to use Phil's language, back and forward between definition and overlap and sameness and difference. And now you hear it in Jesus. He's drawing us into that dance. But how does Jesus talk about God? What God are we talking about is our big question. But we ask the question, where is God? And I wonder if Jesus might help us with this. Is Jesus talking about a God who is behind us? Or is Jesus talking about a God who is ahead of us? And is how Jesus talks about God how you think about God? And is it how other people hear you talk about God? Is God something back there that we are being directed forward from? Or is God ahead of us? Many times we talk about God as if he might actually be back there. And the God back there has sort of set a path for us to head into the future. And we have this sort of map and these arrows and these directions, and our job is to sort of head off in that direction. But is that how Jesus talks about God? Jesus seems to be talking about a God who is ahead of us, a God who has gone ahead of us to prepare something for us. And if that is true, then that means that time, one of God's great creations, is on this journey of drawing us towards God. Let me explain it like this. I've been doing some diagrams, and this is the best I can do uh, when it comes to art. I think most of us imagine time broadly like this. And maybe if you were put in an exam room, you'd come up with something more impressive. But we have God. And then God makes the world. I think about the stories we've talked about over the past few weeks about, about God in the beginning. Last week, we talked a lot about John chapter 1. And I think we sort of think of the sort of story works. God makes the world. There's God. God makes the world. At some point later in that story, he sends Jesus into the world. And then somewhere around there, many of us think, based on watching the news, near the end, there's us. Right? And we sort of sit in the story here. Now, I'm curious, please don't give me a show of hands, but I'm curious how that sort of relates to how you think about time. One of the things I notice about when I talk to people that give me this sort of image of how they think about how things are going is unconsciously what we do is we have this God whom time is moving us away from. So God is there, and we're sort of moving on this journey, and we're slowly getting further and further away from him. Think about how you talk about God, or think about how the world perhaps talk about God. God is something in the past, and the further we go into history, the further we move into the future, rather, 
God becomes less and less of an influence on the world. It becomes less and less of a thing that we need to notice about. God is back there, and we are moving forward. Einstein helped us with this, and I know that you were refreshing yourself on Einstein this morning um, because you knew you were coming to church, and you said, honey, really, we've got to talk about relativity over cornflakes. But Einstein's ideas about relativity help us in this because one of the things that he made very aware to us is that time is part of the created universe. Time is part of the world that we live in. It's not something that happens kind of underneath the world, but rather time is part of it all. We live in this multi-dimension thing of space and time. Which actually is interesting for me as a Bible uh, reader, because in John chapter 1, John says to us that nothing that is created was created without Jesus. So there's this subtle sense that it's okay to confess from Scripture with Einstein that time was also part of God's creation. So perhaps the diagram you want to draw, again, within my limitations, look how much I've developed in my art, circles. Um, I wonder if we maybe need to think about things a little more like this. And I would suggest that, again, rudimentarily, this is sort of, I think, what the Bible speaks to. That Jesus, who was there before the beginning, if you read John and what John wants you to learn, actually was there when both time and space were created. And he was both there at the beginning. He was there prior to there even being such a concept as a beginning. He also interacts with us in the middle of this story, incarnate, the story will tell, over Advent and Christmas, but then somehow he's also in the future, that Jesus is somehow ahead of us. So time, really what I'm trying to suggest here, time is not something that God is fixed within, but rather he is the creator of it. So God isn't in the past, but he is in the past, and he isn't stuck in the future, but he is also in the future, and he is with us here. God sees time, perhaps in the same way that you see your journal. <laughs> let me look at the front, let me look at the back, let me look in the middle. We can interact with this object. What if God can interact with time in the same way, that God can be present here, there, everywhere? What that means, if this is what the Bible seems to be wrestling with, again, in very basic ways with how we relate to time, that would mean that as time progresses, as time is drawing us forward, it's actually drawing us towards God. In my father's house, Jesus says, there are many rooms if it was not so. I wouldn't have told you that I'm going there to get them ready. The world that Jesus paints us in this text is one wherein time is taking us towards God. But how do you think about time? An important reflection for you. How do you think about time? What's your view of time? What's your idea about time? How do you cognitively think about time? How do you emotionally think about time? When was the last time you asked yourself, what are my emotions regarding time? Actually, you do this a lot, particularly if you're broadly my age. <laughs> and if you're not my age, you will start to ask this question soon. And if you're a lot older than me, you've just given up asking this question. But the question, what is my emotional relationship to time, happens most days in the mirror. Let me ask the question slightly differently. Not how do you feel about time, how do you feel about aging? Like, pumped, right? <laughs> Super happy. Thank the Lord I'm getting older. 
Actually, most of us have a relatively negative view about aging, which intrinsically speaks to a rather negative view that we have towards the development of time. We work in this kind of worldview, particularly in the Western context, wherein what we think is that the best is behind us. We talk about our own lives as if the best is behind us. As we're getting older, things are getting worse. Things were better when we were younger. If you think about time and how it relates to us in terms of age, most of us, our engagement with time is that it's a fight. Fight the signs of aging, the commercials tell us. And they give us hope that it's a fight you can win. And, and you can't. <laughs> it's a fight you can't win. But I wonder if it's a fight we can change our mind about and change how we think about it. You see, because it's a fight, because we want to control it. We want to control time. We want to be in charge of time. We want to be able to represent ourselves as powerful over time. Because time was good, and it's getting worse. And I wonder if this doesn't affect our view of God. I wonder if actually our general attitude towards time as a progression that is not going the way we want it to go actually changes how we think about God. When we say things like about our kids or our grandkids, oh, like, oh my goodness, everybody's getting so old, if only we could slow it down. This wish that we could change the trajectory of time starts to influence how we talk about God. God was better in the past, we say. Church was better in the past. Society was more Christian in the past. And while we talk like this, have you ever heard anyone talk like this? While we talk like this, we're basically presenting a worldview wherein God is a shrinking force. God was powerful, but as time progresses and we get further and further from him, God's influence is less. It's waning. And this affects us massively in the church. Because what we start to do is we say, because God was good here and is waning in his influence, our job as the church then becomes to fight that. What we do with aging is what we start to do with God. How do we protect the past? How do we hold things as they were? And therefore, what happens is our view of God, the Bible, theology, religion, all become protectionist. They're about slowing down change. They're about defending the systems. But Jesus doesn't seem to talk about God this way. Jesus seems to talk about God as someone doing something in the future that he's excited about us getting to. Jesus talks about God as if God is ahead of us, and he's ahead of us drawing us into himself. He's pulling us forward. God's not behind us saying, let's protect this ideal because things were great back then, but rather God is ahead of us. What if Christianity, what if the way of following Jesus it's not about protecting the past, but listening to what God is trying to do in the present that will call us into the future. Is it possible that God is not shrinking, but rather that the best is ahead? Jesus says to his disciples that what he has been doing could be different than what we will do, but what we will do might be greater. Now, huge theological questions about what that means, I'm sure, and I'm going to answer none of them this morning. I want you to think about the trajectory that Jesus is not painting you a picture of a world that is worse in the future than the present. Actually, the opposite. Jesus is saying God has done something, but God will continue to do things, and the way it's going is better. 
How would you see God differently? How would you read the Bible differently if you thought that this is the story we're part of? How would it change your politics? How would it change your view of society? How would it change how you voted if you thought to yourself, actually, God is not diminishing, God is not a waning force, but actually he can, will, and intends to do something in our world. But I wonder if we also might need to listen to God more closely. Because if we've got a book of rules that we can just live by to protect the past, that's quite easy. But Jesus calls us, perhaps, to something different. Have you noticed how it's possible to be very religious, be very serious about God, but be convinced that your job as a Jesus follower is to protect the past, and therefore actually find, your, find yourselves fighting against what God is trying to do? You see, it's not that we're not backwards people. Actually, as humans, we're, we're massively future-oriented. Like most of us are always thinking about the future. We're always looking ahead of ourselves. But how we look ahead of ourselves is the problem. Because if we're moving away from God and God's power is diminishing, our view of the future is one of anxiety and fear. Because it gets more scary the more time passes. The more we head this direction and leave God behind, it gets more terrifying to know what to do, how to do it. Because the future is one that we must have to create ourselves. The future is one of which we're slightly more alone than we were yesterday. Perhaps you'd resonate with the question if we ask it like this. Have you ever asked yourself this? Am I doing it right? Not just about your faith, about everything. And having answered the question, am I doing it right? The second question comes up, which is, and how would I know if I wasn't? Is somebody going to tell me how am I going to figure this out? Most of us, our view of the future is one of anxiety, which fascinates me because Jesus takes this piece in which he's talking about a God who is in the future calling us towards himself, and he begins with, do not let your hearts be troubled. And he ends it with, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. It's almost as if Jesus knows that we get worried about this sort of stuff that Jesus knows that our view towards the future terrifies us, and he's trying to tell us something different. And the reason he's able to see this is because this is the God who does not leave us alone. This is the God who does not abandon us. Jesus takes this language about he's working into the future, and he doesn't want you to be afraid, and he uses this as the platform to introduce us to this other person from the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son are now available to you beyond the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus says to the disciples, I'm going away. How can that be good news? Jesus says, it's good that I'm going away. How can it be good that Jesus is going away? He says, well, I'm going away, but I'm also coming back. He says, I'm going away and I'm coming back because then I can be with all of you. The upside down nature of the kingdom of God is that God can be with you and go away and that'd be a good thing. Not because God's getting smaller and he's diminishing, but because God is growing. The Jesus who was present to 12 is now present to everybody through the Holy Spirit. Notice then that Jesus is talking about God not as something in the past and not as something simply in the future, but God is now being talked about as something that is somehow future and present. The God who's preparing us for what he's doing is also with us. 
The story began, Jesus said, I'm going to go away and make a place and a home for you. And by the end, as he introduces us to the Holy Spirit, he says, God is coming to make his home with you. Karl Barth, in his Church Dogmatics, phrases it something like this. This is my attempt to paraphrase about a page and a half. He says, the Spirit is that element of revelation. You remember that revelation of Jesus? The Spirit is that element of revelation which is different from Christ yet still to be regarded wholly and entirely as the Spirit of Christ who makes Christ known to us. He does not give any other content in this knowing other than knowing this Jesus in our space and time. Bart's simply saying this. Is the Spirit of God different from Jesus? Yes. In what way? In no way at all. (laughs) He is different and the same. Because what the Spirit of God is doing is the incarnate Jesus that we will remember his birth shortly in the Christian calendar. That Jesus who was born in Nazareth is now in this moment of space and time with you, completely and wholly. Which is a lot to get your head around, I get. But one of the calls of following this Jesus we talk about is learning to live within that tension of the God who made the world, who is in the future, who was born in Jesus, is also with us right now. See, the Holy Spirit sets us free. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us children of God. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us God's words to speak. And it's the Holy Spirit who does in time, in this moment in time, what God is always doing in times, making himself known to us and being with us. We talked about this a lot during our summer series this year, but the Holy Spirit is sort of turning things upside down and kind of causes a bit of disruption in our day-to-day lives. But why is the Holy Spirit causing all this disruption? Because he wants God to be known to us. The Holy Spirit is changing the narrative, not of a God who is diminishing, but a God who is growing nearer to us and working with us. The Holy Spirit is about an encounter with the God who loves us. And I love this, by the way. Don't miss it. I will not leave you as orphans. Jesus has not abandoned us. And if we're not orphans, then we're children. Children of God. In uh, another, another text that you might find maybe helpful, Marty Folsom says this, has a question to us. When you talk about God, do you seek to define and describe the person of the Spirit for doctrinal propriety? Or are you open to know the present living Lord who speaks and calls you to follow and whose call is consistent with the voice of Jesus and the heart of the Father. I love this question. It's worth just reflecting on. Why do you want to talk about God? Because you just want to be right? You just want to make sure that everything's okay and you've got all your ducks kind of theologically lined up properly? Or is it that you want to know the God who wants to be with us, the Spirit who wants to live with us, who is fully consistent with the voice of Jesus and the heart of the Father? My friend Jimmy is going to come and share dialogue with us this morning. If you've not met Jimmy before, uh, Jimmy's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful friend of Westside's. He runs our Alpha program. If you've been on Alpha, you will totally be like, oh, yes, finally, someone on stage that I like. And uh, have a seat, Jimmy. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so Jimmy's going to share some dialogue with us. But, but really, to you, that question as well. What do you want to dialogue off the back of our teaching this morning? Has something in the kind of three C's we often ask, has something conflicted for you or caused some confusion or brought some clarity 
really the ultimate question, which I think is, aligns beautifully with our, 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 at least what I'm hoping to say this morning, is what is the Holy Spirit doing in you? If this is a moment for us to hear all of our voices resonating with what God's doing. But, so think about that. If you've got a question, throw up a hand and Tori or Jen will bring the microphone to you. But while you're thinking about that, Jimmy, do you have any reflections? Yeah, I have a couple thoughts, David. Um, I think we need to seriously take into account that the Holy Spirit is with us. It's in us. We tend to forget that in our busy life and our daily routines that God is actually with us, in us. There's a togetherness, a oneness, a union, if you may call it, with God in our lives every moment of our lives. And that's, frankly, very profound. And uh, we don't have to live our lives alone. We live our lives with God. Um, the Holy Spirit also is love because Phil, Phil a couple of weeks ago said God is love. Mm. And uh, God has poured actually his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us according to Romans 5. So sometimes we also do not seem to understand or we lose sight of the fact that God loves us immensely. And that's something I think we should reflect on, the love of God. And Paul talks about that in Ephesians, yeah. how he prays for the Ephesians that um, they should be able to, he should, he's praying that they should grasp how long and wide and high and deep the love for God is. And, and that's something that we should also ponder and reflect. And frankly, it should break our hearts how much God loves us. And with that love, we should be able to love God back with all our hearts and mind and our souls, with all intensity and passion. Um, and also it gives us the capacity to love others, love our neighbors, help them to encounter God as well. I, I, I really, that, that word you use, togetherness, really resonates with me. I wonder if it resonates with you as well, that, that a lot of our models of God, because I think they do create distance between us and God, right. this beauty of the idea of really what Jesus is introducing us to is a deep togetherness. I'm in the Father, the Father's in you, and I am in you, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. I mean, it's as if Jesus is using every way he can to point out we're with you. And right. I, I love that. I love that. I wonder if we don't maybe reflect on that enough. But, but the thoughts and resonances and ideas and conflicts from, from you, does anybody have anything they want to share? Yeah, I've got a question down here. Tori has these fast shoes on this morning, so he'll be with you, uh, he'll be with you very briefly. Okay, thank you, Tori. Um, I reflect on the verse, uh, the, he wist not that the Lord had left him. Mm -hmm. I think it was Samson who didn't realize when he went to battle that God wasn't with him. Yeah. Does the presence of the Spirit come and go, or is there a consistency? I don't know if I'm making myself... Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think, I mean, I, I think that does the presence of the Spirit come and go, or is there consistency? I, I have some thoughts on that. I, I mean, I'm very happy to jump in, but I don't want to... I'm always jump talking. In, I'll, so. I'll, I'll, I'll comment. I... I actually, I, I want to feel, maybe the, I'm not, please forgive me if, if I misspeak here. 
I think probably most of us resonate with that question, not just at its theological level, but actually at its, at its deeply pastoral level, as in, does God leave me sometimes? Does God abandon me sometimes? And I would always want to say that what we see happen in Jesus, uh, and we see the sense that the Spirit has now come to be with all of us always, this would be, for me, one of the, the real major shifts of the ministry of Jesus, to make God's Spirit available to us and not leave us as orphans. And you do, and I'm going to be cautious, please don't hear what I'm not saying, but you see the Holy Spirit interact with different people for brief periods of time in the Old Testament. But after the revelation of Jesus, what we see is that those little pictures were insights in the brief and the temporal of what God is going to do in the permanent for, for us going forward. So I would take the model that we see from a Samson, for example, and just be conscious of, of this idea that we are now living after what Jesus has said in John 14. The Holy Spirit is now with us. So I'd lean into texts like Romans 8 or Ephesians Three, or as I said, three, I'm thinking it's actually four, but it is three, isn't it? How wide, how high, how deep. Three. Romans 8, you know, this idea of there's nothing that separates us from God. So I would, if I can speak to perhaps that subtle gnawing anxiety that even if it's not present in your question, I think a lot of us would relate to that, oh, is God coming and going? To say that what we see post-Jesus is this permanence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, oh, that... I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Romans 8 specifically says nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, and repeatedly in Scripture, it talks about the Holy Spirit being in us and Christ in us. So there is a permanence that uh, God is with us all the time. I, um, what's, what's funny is when I was wrestling with this sermon, I kept finding myself thinking, man, I want to go to Romans 8 in this sermon. I want to go to Romans 8 in this sermon. And I'm like... I always want to go to Romans 8, so I decided not to. And now I feel like the Holy Spirit is using you to tell me that was the wrong decision. But so, so we're going to have a little moment of Romans 8. I am convinced, and think, listen to this. Paul decides just to give us a list, right? Yep. I am convinced that, yep. that neither death nor life, fascinating to think about that, neither angels nor demons. I don't know what angels are doing trying to separate us from God, but, <laughs> but even if they did, they can't, right? Neither height nor depth. Now, anything all else in all creation, I'm just going to bring in Einstein to Romans 8 there. That includes time. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, so for me, that what I think Paul is doing in that text with this sort of random list is just like anything you can come up with, including the angels of heaven themselves, won't separate us from God's love. So I would include... If you've, if you've kind of tracked with what I've been trying to do in this teaching, which I hope is actually just what Jesus is doing in John 14, is that if you can't be separated from God in Christ, then you cannot be separated from God, be it Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. So, I mean, I, I hope that helps all of us, but I hope that, that kind of, that would be my response and reaction, that live confident that, that maybe this is not good news for us, but I'm being sarcastic when I say that. Jesus loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and his spirit is with you and will not leave you as orphans. So, like, I would say, <laughs> I have a friend, we talk about the Bible a lot, and we, we sometimes have these random little moments where we think about what a text could mean, and we go, but don't bet your house on it. 
I would say bet your house on this one. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to leave you, and therefore the Holy Spirit isn't either. That would be my sort of take on that. Jesus has got you. Tough if you don't like it. <laughs> we have a question here. And when I say tough if you don't like it, that sounded really cold. I actually mean it to sound like to plummet us into the depth of just this incredible story in Jesus. Hey, David. Um, I'm just wondering what it means, sort of along the same lines, what does it mean when Paul talks about not to quench the Spirit? Mm. Can you remind me? You put me on the spot there. Uh, Give me your reference. First Thessalonians 5.19, Paul writes to the Thessalonians for the purpose of telling them how they should live, including this, he warns them not to quench the Spirit. Yeah, I, I think just one of the things I love about that, that little text there. Um, one, of, one of the great things to do when you read Paul, and please do read Paul, like read Paul. He seems kind of scary sometimes, but honestly, he'll save you and, uh, because he'll point you to Jesus, and that's what will save you. It's a series about theology, so we need to be accurate on these things. So always what's helpful to do with Paul is just have a little zoom out, so you do not quench the Spirit. One of the things I think Paul does in a lot of his writing is he helps us when he makes a statement, it often is linked to the surrounding statements. I would just notice that he talks about, um, you know, acknowledge the people who work hard and serve amongst you, those who care in the Lord. Hold them in love. Live at peace with each other, right? Warn those who are idle and destructive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Always strive to do what is good. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And then he says, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. I, I mean, I love the question because it's, again, it's one of these questions that roots in, I wonder if I'm doing something wrong. Uh, I think that, again, maybe that's not intended by you, but I can, I can hear these questions throughout my life, I've asked them. I think we've all asked them. What I love is that Paul's almost providing you with a map as to how not to quench the Spirit. Be full of joy. Pray continually, uh, which I think means that have a constant heart of prayer. You know, don't treat what God is doing contemptuously. That doesn't mean you can't test it. That doesn't mean you can't ask the tough questions. Is that what God's doing? But I think if you have that attitude, what you do, and this is what I love because it's in the center. Paul's a Hebrew writer, by the way, and, and what Hebrew writers do invariably, you'll see this in the Psalms all the time, is their big idea is always in the middle, not at the end. So our Western way of thinking often is to start at the beginning and big reveal at the end. In Hebrew writing, it's, it's often encased in the middle. So in the middle of this, you've got this notion of not quenching the spirit, surrounded by love, thankfulness, patience, prayer, you, you know, uh, testing that the spirit is working. So that would be my, my kind of help, hopefully helpful response. I hope all my responses are helpful to say that not quenching the Spirit is when we start repaying wrong for wrong, when we start ignoring what God is doing, when we start being ungrateful for the loving things that people do to us. I don't know if that helps. Jimmy, do you want to? Yeah, I think I, think I completely agree. I think uh, it doesn't mean that God is not with us. The Spirit is always with us. It's how we sometimes respond to the Spirit's promptings or how we respond to situations that uh, causes issues. It's not God. It's basically us. Mm. And even I wonder, I'm not trying to, I always feel awkward about trying to say, let me repeat something from my sermon. But if we think that God is behind us and in need of defense, 
then there can be a sense that when God's trying to move us into new space, we feel like the, the right thing to do is to not let that happen. And I think that can be a form of quenching God's spirit as well, that, that God's trying to do something, and we're going, oh, wait a minute, God, you've not done it like that before, so let's stop that happening. I don't yeah, that sometimes the Holy Spirit makes us feel uncomfortable and leads us to do things which we don't want to do. It kind of stretches us, mm. and, um, and, and that's, yeah. that's normal. Beautiful questions, I think. I'm going to just, for, um, for sake of time, just, just pause it there as we sort of land out the series. But, but what, I, what I hear, if I can attempt to hear in both the questions this morning, is actually what I think, I think if you're honest, all of us will resonate at some level with, with both the sort of comments that we've heard this morning. This question of a desire to serve God, want to know that he's with us and not do that. And what I'd hope you'd hear throughout this series is something of an answer to that question, is that if God is coming towards us, think about Philippians 3, that I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. So, so God's grabbed you, and you're trying to grab him back. And it's absolutely okay to grab him back, but he's already got you even if you don't. Kind of like if you've ever had, if you ever spent any time with a child, and you're carrying them or you're holding their hand, you know, and you're going to cross the road, and you say to a small child, listen, hold my hand. They hold your hand. In truth, they're not doing much, right? Because if they let go of your hand, you're not letting go of their hand. And I love that as an image of, of, of God, that, that all that you're doing with God is grasping hold of him who has already grasped you. He's made himself known to you. He's got you. So what that allows us to do, even in a series where we're talking about how do we talk about God, I just encourage you, allow that way of talking about God to sort of leak out from you the God who's got you, and therefore you don't live in fear. And, and I, just picking up on something you said, Jimmy, just earlier, if we take that then as how we talk about God, it actually affects how we talk about our neighbor as well. Because now we allow that love of God to flow through us into our neighbors, that our neighbors don't encounter us talking about a God who we're never quite sure where we stand with, but instead we meet a God who's with us, holding us, not letting us go. Why don't we stand and let me offer you a benediction together uh, this morning that I hope does something for the series. Um, we had this thought um, that I just shared in the first service, that it is, it is difficult for people to believe in a God that they can't, it's difficult for people to believe that a God they can't see loves them if a church they can see doesn't love them. And we talk about God but part of the real purpose of God talk is so that God's love might seep out of us into those who struggle to see a God that they can't see, but he's revealed himself to us, and we allow his love to leak out into those around us. So maybe, maybe uh, you just accept this as a, as a benediction and a blessing. May you talk about God. May your God talk be about the God we have met in Jesus. May you talk about the Spirit as Jesus with us. And when you talk about God, may people hear you talk about a God, not whom you're defending from the past or arguing for a particular religion, but may they hear you talk about a God who is real, encounterable in the Jesus who loves you, who is with you, and is drawing you into this great future that God has for us. And may his grace, peace, and his love be with you.